0: We are still in Mark's gospel, and we are in uh, chapter 8. We are in this section where Jesus is fulfilling his ministry uh, in the area of Galilee. And when we finish this, then he will make a move down to Judea and to Jerusalem. And he will no longer be ministering up in the Galilee area. But for the time being, that's, that's where we still are. Um, he was, so we, we last met Jesus with feeding of the 4,000. Um, and then he had taken a, a boat, as we recall, over to this region called Dalmanutha, which nobody knows where that's at. Matthew says Magdala. Still don't know where that's at. There's no solid way that anyone has, no archaeologists have any way to really identify just where that was located. But it appears to be when you follow the, you know, the, where Jesus went and the chronology, it seems like it's on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee somewhere. But, and maybe these are names for something that was more familiar in their day, but not to us. And we don't know. So I I really don't know. Um, You know, and nobody else does either. So um, I feel good when I don't know and nobody else does either. Uh, You don't feel like you're all alone in the camp. Well, as happened so frequently in the life and ministry of Jesus, the next thing we see happening is a confrontation with the Pharisees again. Now Mark's account is quite brief on this. Matter of fact, two verses. Matthew's account is a little bigger, but it's not a whole lot to it either. It's four verses. But he says there in verse eleven, Matthew or Mark chapter eight, verse eleven, then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. Now, if we turn back to Matthew's account in chapter 16 and beginning in verse one, I'll just read those four verses. It's quite short, but you'll find there's a whole lot more information given there. Because then we find out in verse 1, it says, Then the Pharisees and the Sadducees came. That's the first time that the Sadducees are on the scene. And it's rather interesting that they came together. Because as you well know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't get along very well. They didn't see eye to eye. Matter of fact, religiously speaking, they were absolute bitter enemies. that tells you something about the attitude and spirit which with they had joined together to confront Jesus and seek this sign. So they came and testing him asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be your foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And no sign shall be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, there's a lot more here in Matthew's account. You wonder, well, why didn't Mark say a little bit more about it? Well, we remember that Matthew was writing to the Jews. Mark was writing to the Romans. And he didn't find it necessary to include all this uh, other extraneous information that was not pertinent to his gospel message. And so in sharing these things, he left them out. But I think even for us, for our purpose, it behooves us to... Uh, look in upon these things and take note of them because they're important to the whole story. Now, this little uh, thing that Jesus quoted—I'm not or, or repeated—I don't sure what I want to what, what, ah, what I want to call that. But this, when it's in the evening, you say it's fair weather, and in the morning it's foul weather, and so on. You know, uh, we've shortened that to say. We used to say it up north, red sky at night, sailors delight. You, you know that one, red sky in morning, sa- sailors take warning. And that was a pretty good indicator of the weather. Red sky at night, things weren't looking so good weather-wise. Red sky, or, or they were looking good. Red sky in morning, sailors take warning. Storms were coming. So, but he used that to say that the Pharisees, Who could discern the weather could not discern the signs of the times. Now that that ought to speak to us. We ought to be able to discern and to know what's going on around us from a spiritual dimension. If we have our heart and our mind in the scriptures and the word of God, we understand the things that Jesus is teaching us, things that Paul taught us and Peter and James and John and so on. If we are comprehending these things, then we ought to be able to look at the things going on around us in our world, even in our own local community. And understand what's happening. Particularly with the drawing down of this age. And it's drawing to a close. It's coming to an end. And the things that are coming upon us. And so we need to have minds that are sharpened by God's word. We need to have hearts that are sensitive and open to the things he's trying to teach us. And when the spirit of God speaks to us then we need to listen. The Pharisees, on the other hand, as we saw earlier, with the issues of ritual washings, were only concerned with the externals. And that's why Jesus called them hypocrites. They only were concerned with things going on outside, with the details, the minutiae of their... Religious worship, doing this, doing that, observing this and observing that, and not paying any attention to the affections of their own heart. And, of course, Jesus made quick, quick correction on that by letting them know that the things that come out of the heart of man are the things that defile them. And so the lesson for you and I is to really know that that thing had nothing to do with washing dirty hands. And it had everything to do with custom and rite and ritual and the heart. Knowing that hearts are clean and pure and right before him. Well, we come to this section here with the Pharisees, who are seeking a sign from heaven, typical things that the Pharisees would want to do. They were always looking, and the Jew, of course, was always looking for a sign, the Pharisees in particular. They wanted some true validation that this man who was going around doing these miracles was truly of God and from heaven, You see, if they could see some kind of an act or a deed or a miracle that they could connect with heaven, that would trump all the healings that Jesus did that were connected with the earth. You know, withered hands, casting out demons, healing a blind man, you know, all these sorts of things. These were just, you know, here. And so they wanted to see something far more than just that. And having seen something like that, they would say, well, now we can see that you have authority from heaven, from God the Father, to do these things. And the irony, I guess, of the whole thing, um, you know, that really by asking that very question, it showed forth the, the, the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees. Because all the things that Jesus had been doing were things that were to authenticate his ministry. All the healings, the casting out of demons. You know, you look back at Isaiah 61, you remember when and remember when John the Baptist said uh, his, sent his disciples to say, Are you the one or do we look for another? And Jesus said, You go back and tell John all these things as I'm doing. And by doing those things, John would know then, okay, he's the one, he's the Messiah because the old Testament scriptures said, that's what the Messiah would do. The coming one. And so he did, but they failed. The Pharisees failed to see that. And so in their own question, in their own desire, to find authentication in what Jesus was doing, they were actually, in a sense, condemning their own selves. Now, it says they began to dispute with him, seeking a sign from him from heaven, uh, testing him. Of course, the whole idea here was they didn't really think he could do it. And if he failed, then they would know he wasn't the Messiah. Well, quite frankly, there had been many, many men come on the scene claiming to be Messiah in Jesus' day. And they didn't pan out. But in this instance, Jesus said, I'm not going to show you any sign. Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. Now we know that there were many signs given. I mean, even in John's gospel, how many signs were given? Eight? Many signs were given, but he said no sign will be given to this generation. So what's he saying here? Well, he's not going to fulfill their request and give them the sign that they were looking for. They had sufficient of which to show that the man they were looking at was none other than the Lord's Messiah. They didn't need another sign. But even besides that, Matthew says, except for the sign of Jonah. So, what was the sign of Jonah? The resurrection. Jonah going down into the belly of the whale, the whale taking Jonah down into the depths of the sea, and then ultimately coming back up and spewing him out on the shore, was a vivid picture of the coming resurrection of Christ. And if there was ever an ultimate sign that would point to Jesus as being the Messiah, it was his resurrection from the dead. Many of those others who had been claiming to be messiahs had been crucified like Jesus was. But they never rose from the grave. They stayed there. But this one, when he would rise from the grave, that would be the ultimate test. That would be the ultimate sign that would show he was the true messiah. Well, in answering this question, it says he sighed deeply in his spirit. You know, if you, if you look back at chapter 7, well, at least in my Bible, i got to turn back to verse 34. You remember, um, <coughs> excuse me, um, in verse 33, well, the, in verse 32, they brought this one who was uh, deaf and had the impediment in his speech. And verse uh, 34, it says, then looking up to heaven, he sighed. Well, this is the same word, only on this occasion, it's got, it has a preposition in front of it, adding intensity to it. He, and that's why they translate it, he sighed deeply. The other one was, he just sighed. And I thought it was interesting that in the previous one, he sighed in view of a person's physical needs. But here, he sighed very deeply concerning the spiritual condition of the Pharisees, their lack of understanding, their rebellious spirit and attitude towards him, and ultimately, of course, their rejection of him. So he sighed deeply in his spirit. Why does this generation seek a sign? Now, the, and I didn't write this down, but I wish I would have. Um, the, the, the phrase says something like this if, this, if this generation seeks a sign or something like uh, something on that order, and then it just stops. So it's sort of like if you and I would say, if we're being confronted with something and we might say to that person, well, if the sun rises on you tomorrow, you know and then you stop and you don't really tell them what's going to happen. But they get the picture, don't they? <laughs> they mean they know you mean business. And that's kind of like what you have right here. He just left it unanswered. And he didn't say anymore. Because they're always wanting a sign. And it's this generation. This generation. This generation of Jews that Jesus was preaching the gospel to. You know, the scripture uses that, that, that phrase in other places. For instance, in, if you go back to the book of Genesis, to chapter 7, and you'll see that, that, that same expression with regard to the generation of that day. Now, in verse 1, It says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. In other words, the rest of the generation wasn't. But I see that you, Noah, are. And so you see the negative implication when he uses that phrase, this generation um, I think I got it written down somewhere else here. Oh yeah, Psalm 95. Let's turn over to what I hope is a familiar psalm to you. If it isn't, you really, really ought to know this psalm. Psalm 95, Because the reason is because you'll find it quoted extensively in Hebrews chapter 3. In Psalm 95, in verse... 10 and Verses 10 and 11. The psalmist there says, For 40 years I was grieved with that generation. That generation. And said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This generation, that generation, a specific people at a specific time, Time. And then, if you look over at, um, well, let's see, we'll go back actually to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 32, and there in verse 5, Moses is singing this song right before the present generation is getting ready to enter into the promised land. And he says in verse 5, they have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish, a perverse and crooked de- generation. And then on down in verse 20, re- he repeats it again. He says, they have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have, I'm reading in verse 21. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a pre- perverse generation. So when Jesus is talking about this generation, he's talking about a certain time in history and a class of people who God is not pleased with and he's going to have to deal with. And when he wants to, you know, he asks that question then, if they ask me a sign, you know, it's like, that's it. And then he doesn't say anymore. Now, you don't see that in the English translation. No sign shall be given to him, Not the one they're looking for. And then he just ends. That's all Mark has to say about it. As a matter of fact, you look in the next verse and it says, and he left them. It's like Jesus was finished dealing with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, he wasn't. He did have further confrontations with him. But the oppression and the spiritual warfare that he had to go through to deal with a generation that was totally against the Lord's Messiah caused him to just up and leave. So here he was. They were over in... The west or eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. They got into a boat in verse ten, came to Dalmanutha. The Pharisees Apparently, this was pretty near to Capernaum. The Pharisees and the Sadducees come out. They confront Jesus, and then he turns around and leaves immediately. And it says they've got into the boat again in verse thirteen, and they departed to the other side, back to the east side of the Sea of Galilee again. Now says here, the disciples had, and this is really an interesting introduction to what follows, the disciples had forgotten to take bread and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Now, in our way of thinking, a loaf of bread, you know, you could share a slice with 12 people, 13 with Jesus, but he's talking about a little, you know, a bun, maybe this size, wouldn't go very far. That was all they had. Now, he's getting ready to reveal the spiritual barrenness even of his own disciples. And so you have to watch this carefully because he gives them, without saying it in words, he gives them, I mean, he does say it in words, but he doesn't use the word, I should say. Rebuke them. In a very sharp way. In verse 15, it says, He charged them, a strong word. And He charged them with this saying Take heed, beware. Take heed and beware of what? Of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, of course, you and I know right away he's got a spiritual lesson that he's wanting to teach his disciples, and they're not going to get it. They don't see it. As a matter of fact, it says in verse 16, they reasoned among themselves, saying, it is because we have no bread. Now, that that just really was... You know, if you're talking to someone and you're trying to convey spiritual truth to them, and I'm sure you've had the experience where they just don't get it, they can't see it. Jeff, would you just mute the internet for just a minute? Sorry, folks. Okay, we're good. Got it. Because i want to tell you something. I found out one of my uncles was a believer. What I didn't tell you and what I don't want to say <laughs> over the Internet is he had been a member of the United Methodist Church for, well, at that point in time, I'm trying to figure up. It must have been about 55 or 56 years now, his first wife had died, and she's the reason he was going to the Methodist church. He, otherwise, he probably never would have gone his whole life. She died early on. He met another lady whose husband had died, and she had gone to a Wesleyan church. Now, that's pretty much a kiss and cousin to a Methodist church. And then she married a guy who was an Adventist. So they went to Adventist church for a while. Then he died. So then she went back to the Wesleyan church. Then she married my uncle. Now they will go back to the Methodist. So they're in the Methodist church now. So she told me this herself now. And then he said it too. He said about three years ago, I, went, I told my wife, I said, would you mind reading the Bible to me? and explaining it he said because i don't understand what our preachers saying and i never have and and he told me he said and i sang in the choir for 54 years and the only reason he quit was because he said he started losing his hearing and he you know he couldn't carry a tune anymore so she led him to the lord about 3 years ago now i'm just saying is it possible to spend a lifetime nearly in church and not be able to comprehend what's being taught what the scriptures teach Well you're going to find out as we go through this passage that's exactly what happened to the disciples Jeff Okay, so you see where we're heading here. It is possible. And so these disciples had no comprehension of what he was trying to tell them about this bread and the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of the Sadducees, or excuse me, the leaven of Herod. Of course, the leaven of the Sadducees was there too, but he didn't didn't mention that. Now, when he said take heed and beware, it's a, double, a double-headed warning here. To take heed just means be alert, watch what they're saying, be careful what you listen to from the Pharisees, and beware means to pay attention and to watch out for the danger It's in front of you. Now, we find out from, from Matthew that the leaven of the Pharisees was their doctrine. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 12, he said to them very plainly there, it was their doctrine, their teaching. And Jesus is warning them and probably as strong as he could, way as he could do it, <clears throat> to beware and be on the alert and watch out for the things that they teach. And then he mentions here about the, well, and of course, even in there, and talking about the leaven, you know what leaven is. Leaven is nothing more than yeast. When you put yeast in, a, in, in some dough, the whole idea of doing it is, is for what purpose? It's to allow fermentation to take place and for it to spread all throughout the dough so that when you bake it, the whole loaf of bread rises nice and evenly and you got this beautiful loaf of bread when it's all done. And it's all full of these little holes, right? Little teeny holes from the yeast. All these little gases in there. The bread dough rises and you bake it and then you go to eat it and it tastes real good and we all like it and we don't like unleavened bread <laughs> unleavened bread is pretty pretty bad as far as the taste buds go but when it comes to yeast bread pretty good unfortunately in scripture leaven always has a negative implication it's always talking about the spread of evil and false doctrine. And that's what Jesus is warning, this, this double-headed warning to his disciples concerning <clears throat> the, the, the Pharisees is their false teaching, their doctrine. And then he goes on to talk about the leaven of Herod. Now, you'll notice that he says the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Two different kinds of leaven here. The, the, the the Herodians, the leaven of Herod was not particularly um, concerning teaching the leaven of Herod. And by the way, he was part Jew was his evil, immoral lifestyle. But not only that, when you look at, um, Oh man, where was that now? Chapter 3, verse 6. Turn back in Mark, chapter 3, verse 6. Because you might remember that there was a group of Jews who actually followed Herod. In verse 6, it says, Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him, that is, against Jesus, how they might destroy him. So the Pharisees... Here, united with the party of the Herodians, those who followed after Herod. And so we have here, Jesus is warning the disciples against both of these, the Pharisees and the Herodians and Herod himself and the leaven that's associated with him. And the idea, of course, is, is to separate yourself from it and don't be taken in by it. now, They reasoned among themselves, saying it is because we have no bread. They thought they were being rebuked because they didn't have any more than one loaf of bread. You remember we talked about that earlier. When Jews were traveling, what did they always do? They always carried their own food because they didn't want to have to eat the food of the Gentiles. That's what they were thinking. And so now, this comes, this this sharp rebuke in the form of a series of questions. Now think about, excuse me, think about all that Jesus has has taught them up to this point. Think about all the, the months and months of ministry they have been through and all the things that Jesus has taught up to this point. And then he asked this big long series of questions. He says, uh, Jesus being aware of it in verse 17 says, why do you reason that you have no bread? That's question number one. Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Question number two. Can you not see with the mind? Can you not understand? Now this word understand was, I I really thought that was pretty neat. Because it's got the idea of, have you been able to pull these things together in your mind and make sense of them? It's like you and I would say today, you know, we can't understand something. You say, "I, I just can't wrap my head around that. Well, he's chiding them for that, rebuking them for that. You can't see that yet? Is your heart still hardened? Now, I want to say that this is not a hardened heart of unbelief. It's a hardened heart of dullness of one that is unable to comprehend spiritual truth. That's the hardness of heart that he's dealing with here. It's a heart that just simply cannot grasp what is going on and what is being said. And this is why we need to spend time, time in the word of God. It's the only way that your eyes can be opened and your ears can hear what is being said. You spend time there and then God has opportunity to let His Spirit work in your heart and enable you to see. Time in the Word. It has to happen. Now, he goes on to say in verse 18, Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? More questions. Can you imagine... The disciples trying to take this in. Whoa. You know, I mean, we would go like, whoa. He's jumping all over him, And he goes on. And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves? And watch those words, when I broke the five loaves. You see how he calls attention back to that. Remember how we talked about it was right in the very act of breaking the bread that the miracle took place that he multiplied the bread. He's bringing their attention back to that very moment. Don't you remember when I multiplied the bread, when I broke it? And how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said 12. And then when I multiplied or broke the loaves of bread in the feeding of the 4,000. And he says, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. And he says, well, how is it you do not understand? (laughs) After all these things, how is it that you don't understand? Now, I don't think that Jesus is trying to tell you and me today that we need to understand everything that's in the Bible. because I certainly don't. And anybody that tells me they do is highly suspect in my book. Uh, It was Peter that said Paul spoke of some things that were really hard to understand. But the things that Jesus had been teaching his disciples and the, the miracles and the casting out of the demons and the various other things that had occurred in the life and ministry of our Lord up to this point and the things they had experienced with him should have been that word understood or understand coming together. Starting to make sense. Beginning to pull in some spiritual truth. Now, I can just tell you, I've been down that road. You know, I, I spent some nearly 25 years trying to figure out what this Bible was all about. And think I've shared with you on more than one occasion... My, 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 the best way I know to express what t- was going on in my mind in those 25 years was I, just, I thought there was like a cloud right here. And I thought on the other side of that, somewhere out there, was where true Christianity was at. And I couldn't get over there. And it didn't happen until God himself opened my mind. And that's the way it'll happen for you and me. How is it you do not understand? Look with me back to um, Mark's Gospel, not Mark, Luke. Luke's Gospel in chapter 24. I'm still tired, believe me. <laughs> I slept so good. Friday night when I got home and then last night, except I got up early. I'm going to get another nap this afternoon. Maybe I'll get caught up. Um, I want to look at verse 45, a verse we've looked at many times and it's a fascinating verse where he says, And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Now, in that verse, when it says that he opened their understanding, that word understanding there is actually the word nous, which is mind. He opened their mind or their intellect. Then when it says that they might comprehend, that's the word we have back in Mark that we've been looking at, translated understand that they might understand or comprehend the Scriptures. But it didn't happen until Jesus did it. What's the answer for you and I? If you're sitting here in your pew or you're listening in at, on the Internet and you're thinking, wow, I just really don't understand I'm having a struggle grasping what the Bible is about. Then ask the Lord to show you. You spend time in his word. And then you ask him to show you pray over it. I remember um, somebody quoting um, Wilson over this whole matter. He said when he was studying, you know, you don't understand something. You don't comprehend that word then pray over that word. You don't understand that phrase? Pray over the phrase. If you don't understand the verse, pray over the verse. Pray, pray, pray over everything in the word of God until you understand it, until God opens your mind and gives you the comprehension you need to understand what the scriptures are about. And he will do it. That's what he's looking for. That's what he honors. That's what he will is pleased to do for each and every one of us. And some of you have been down that road, and you know maybe more even than I do. You've been at it for more years than I have, and you know what I mean. When it comes to seeking the Lord and seeking the truth and seeking to be an understanding disciple, seeking to comprehend the Scriptures, Asking him to open our minds and give us the understanding. Doesn't mean that we just pray and then we walk away. Takes a little word. You need to study. You need to understand a few things. Things that can be comprehended on one level. But those things will take you then to another level. And then to another level. And then to another And then pretty soon, as you begin to study those things, all of a sudden, this level over here and this one over here, and they'll all start to do as that word understand implies. It'll all start to come together. And that's the beauty of growing in the Lord and becoming a mature believer. And I can remember just a few years ago, when all those things started happening, I began to see, wow, all this over here and this, and these all things tie together, and this is how this fits in over here, and this makes sense over here, and all this, and then you see this is just one big grand book. Now, I know people tell you that, and I know you believe it, but have you experienced it? That's the question. Have you experienced it? Well, You can. We can experience it by spending time in his word. Let's pray. And according to, according to one of the little uh, messages that we, well, say little. It was pretty long, actually, that Ken and I was listening to. Whenever the speaker, the preacher, would get done, he'd say, Hope, I hope you got something from our little meditation this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for speaking to us out of your word. It's why you've recorded it for us. It's why the Holy Spirit has uh, inspired these writers to record the things that they did. And I pray, Father, that for each one of us, that we would be moved to dig a little deeper and to go a little farther and to pray a little more so that you might show us those things in your word that we need to know and that will allow us to make progress in our walk with you and ascend to those heights of spiritual maturity that you're seeking for each and every one of us. So bless us, we pray, to that end And that we might be able then to hear one day, well done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.